Bitcoin and energy go together like two peas in a pod? Huh. Everybody knows that, Dad. Well, did you know that donkeys make great crew members? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I don't know when this is going to drop. Technical difficulties. Have us recording BDE, not going live, but welcome in, Digital Wildcatters, with my partners in crime, Mark Meyer, Kirk Coburn. Yes, sir. And in a, I guess just a statement on the quality of modern medical care in the United States, Fraxlap is missing, what, his fourth straight episode with his prostate injury? Well, I did, um, I did go to chat GPT. And I have some advice for Colin. Oh, good. Lay it on us. I said, how do you fix an ongoing prostate problem? So there's three ways, come to think of it. Medication, alpha blockers to relieve urinary symptoms caused by an enlarged prostate. So he could go get medicated. That's Number two, lifestyle changes. <laughs> Drinking enough water, avoiding alcohol and caffeine, and doing regular physical activity. So, yeah. and then third, of course, is surgery. Ooh. Ooh. Let's just stop right there. There we go. Now we have it. I don't know what to make of this. But anyway, fine work, <laughs> fine investigative journalistic work. Mark's like going, can I be cut out of this one? <laughs> no. No, you're in. Speaking of cutting out. Cutting out. Da -da -da. All right, let's jump in. So BP put out their report mm -hmm. that they do every year, as we like to say, beyond petroleum. Or when did they come out with that? 20 years ago. Mark, what do we see in there? Anything? Well, we saw a, you know, a typical framing of the scenarios. They're not suggesting they're, they're um, advocating for a certain path. And it's, it's largely driven by IPCC net zero is the most aggressive. And then what happens to the various forms of energy, both in terms of primary and then final consumption. And in all scenarios, BP... Mm -hmm. um, starting with fossil fuels in the mix between now and 2050 fossil fuels are down from 80% currently thereabouts to anywhere from 20 to 55% of the overall uh, energy mix in 2050. And then in terms of oil demand, which we'll talk, I think more expansively about there's some traffic out uh, comparing BP and Exxon and all in all scenarios, all three scenarios, there's the net zero, there's the accelerated, and then there's mm -hmm. what they call the new momentum scenario, which is more extended, flatter transition, softer landing, if you will, for, for oil demand. But in each one of those scenarios, oil demand is below, if not significantly below, 80 million barrels a day. And net zero, it's down to 20 million barrels a day from 101, 102 million barrels a day currently projected for 2023. And that's BP. That's BP. Now let's let's move forward. I know we're going to talk about Exxon, but what does Exxon say about that? So we'll throw up uh, the chart right now on the uh, screen, but Exxon kind of has us run into call it 105 million, 110 million barrels a day, mm -hmm. and sort of flattening off when you get into 2040. 
2050. Right. I just find it amazing that we're in this in, like incredible time. Like think two years ago, pre-COVID, during COVID, that the energy transition almost caught fire, right? Over the last five years, funds, billions of dollars of money has gone into private equity. Um, we're going to talk through this later in, ongoing in the show. But is oil making a comeback? And I, I really look at Exxon because Exxon seems to be the ones that have the most grounded view of the world. But what do you guys say? Well, I mean, I sit here and go, we shut down the world economy during COVID. So, I mean, an interesting experiment, right? I mean, we literally couldn't walk out of our houses, couldn't do any of this stuff. And we were still using 85 million barrels of oil a day. In a, in a radical shutdown. In a radical, in a radical shutdown. In a, in, a, in a slamming of the brakes, so to speak, to yeah. consu- consumption and mobility. Right. By, by worldwide, mm-hmm. you right. know? And, and, and so I just don't see how we're using anything less than that. I mean, we've, we've beat our heads against the wall on mm-hmm. hybrid cars, and we're going to thro- go all in on electric cars. And we've talked on this show about how mining and the diesel needed to get all those uh, rare earth minerals to be able to build all the electric vehicles probably makes up the slack. But I just, I I don't see how we can, any serious person can plan for a world where we're going to use 20 million barrels a day by 2050. I'll, uh, I'll just raise it again. This is a couple of years ago in the midst of COVID and, and the recovery OPEC did update a long-range forecast from 2020 to 2045, so it's not quite out to 2050. And they have net oil demand growth going up by 8 million barrels a day between 2020 and 2045, 12 million barrels of growth in non-OECD, and 4 million barrels of contraction in OECD. And this is, I mean, it's predicated on sort of the macro trends. We still see that the world population is growing from whatever, 7 billion to 9 billion the fact that these third world countries are coming into sort of the the um, you know the mid market where where poor people are becoming wealthier that drives a lot of demand for energy and there's just not enough renewables or the capability that can replace renewable or oil and gas that quickly even if you wanted it to be a, a you know a flash you know a light switch and just turn it off you can't I, do it I, I think the the two long-range forecasts that are being discussed today, Exxon and BP, are just emblematic of, you know, the the European construct or the political landscape, and, and in some cases, the actual rules of the game versus uh, the U.S.-based point of view. Now, I will say, um, in full disclosure, my formative years were spent at Exxon, so I've just got a bit of an embedded bias. But if you look at the responses mm-hmm. to transition to energy tech, uh, there's there's been a spectrum across the majors in terms of how progressive or how conservative those plans are. Exxon, really middle of the fairway with big flagship uh, spending plan for CCUS, BP going all the way into major investments today in wind and solar, and everything in between with Shell and Chevron and Total, et cetera. And we've got these sort of two dichotomous stories playing out. One is- word. Thank you. Thank you. One is you have SAT prep here on BDE. That's right. One is my, let me step back. My grandfather told me when I was a young boy to not go into oil and gas. So I didn't for most of my career. Now that I'm older, I'm becoming a little bit dumber. 
The Permian went through this sort of lull, but the Permian is booming. And I think the Permian is sort of the 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 metric that we're going to look at for what's happening in the world because independents are we can't find enough people in the Permian to employ because it's on fire. And that's the big story in the Permian right now is like we can't even find enough people. And if you look at sort of the McDonald's, they have signs all over um, West Texas saying we need people. So you have that at the same time, you see sort of see this European view. And what's interesting is Shell just announced my my good friend, YL, Sawan, who I used to work with and have a deep respect for, he just is reorganizing and Shell goes through all these reorgs all the time, but he's reorganizing, putting his integrated gas division and oil into one business unit. And so it's like, it's a cash, cash machine. And he's putting the renewables business into downstream, which is interesting because I think what he's seeing is we've got to run a business here. Um, the independents aren't thinking renewables; they're thinking about making money. And and shareholders, I think, ultimately will reward those that actually return cash to its investors. But we can argue that as well. Well, if if you look at the on the U.S. side, the comparative here in the very recent past, including Exxon's report today, year to date, which is a very small sample of a month. Uh, Chevron's <laughs> down 4% thereabouts, at least last look before coming into the studio. And Exxon's up over 5%, so 900 plus basis points of outperformance coming into the year. And you look at the, the return on capital employed numbers that each posted December 31st for 20, 2022, Exxon, uh, Exxon at about 25%, and then Chevron over double off of mm -hmm. 2021. Um, at 20 at north of 20%. So I think, you know, we continue to see the performance of the major group driven by that very important metric in profitability and return on capital employed. And we're, we're just at the start of the return on capital cycle after going through more than a decade of barely covering cost of capital, if not being below. Cause the, and for some groups, zero. Because the thing I found interesting, because we might as well just kind of roll this into the mix that we're talking about. Chevron came out, did arguably I do, had- Did I do that again? Yeah, whatever. They uh, had relatively, you, one could say disappointing type results. I mean, oil production was down 3% for the year, but they announced a $75 billion buyback, which you know their market cap as of this morning was 334 billion dollars so what's that math 20 25% mm -hmm. so that's a big freaking number to come back but going to your point Kirk what i what i saw from these earnings releases and what you've seen dialogue wise out there by these companies is you know chevron was talking about being at a million barrels a day by you know, out of the permian in 2025 they're not tracking to get there. Nobody can draw the line that gets them there unless they really, really get after it. And Exxon has been pushing back their uh, forecasts in the Permian, Permian as well. As a skeptical analyst, over the last 20 years, when have we seen the majors deliver on rosy volume outlooks long term back in the early 2000s? BP was all over a five sustainable 5% CAGR. And it was just not, you know, it, it was not um, aligned with really both the physical and the financial reality of being able to sustain that level of growth. Just, you know, the, the, the enterprises or the 
kind of law of large numbers, if you will, just given the scale of the company, is that's that's a yeah. big number to sustain. I mean, one of the issues I'm never looking at the majors to lead in the independent or the independence rule. Like you know, being able to produce in the Permian takes uh, you have to be nimble, takes small teams. You've got you know, I think where Exxon, Chevron, Shells, et cetera, BPs thrive is in these giant projects. So it's been billions of capital put in the big projects and then you know the, the the production is huge per project i just don't look at them as saying they're the model and when i was inside one of these super majors i can tell you and attest that it was such a struggle to keep up in these small in the independence onshore especially unconventional we couldn't keep up because we can't move fast enough well and i mean at the end of the day in the permian your project management, if you will, to be able to grow your production really quickly is land guys out swapping stuff so that you have the wherewithal yeah. to drill long laterals. Right. And Exxon can't do that because they've got so many levels of. But uh, I've got an interesting stat that ties back to the majors here, and I'll get these details wrong, but the spirit of it's right. If you look back to call it 2012 you know, or something, and you looked at the initial production rates of an oil well in the United States, I mean, for years, it was up 30 and 40% per year, right? We were figuring out horizontal drilling. Yeah. We were putting the major fracks on it. And then when you looked at, I believe it was 2017 and 2018, it goes from you know, 30, 40% a year to like 15 and 16% for those two years. So you're like, well, it's slowing down. What was really interesting, though, is if you yanked out Chevron and Exxon wells <laughs> in 17 and 18, or maybe this was 18 and 19, somewhere around there, if you yanked out their wells, the average well in the United States, IP rate, oil well, was, was down 3%. So what had actually happened to your point is Chevron and Exxon are late to the game of learning how to drill horizontals and fracking, but God gifted them with a lot of great acreage a long time ago. So they start drilling in the, the Permian late and their gains brought up the industry to, to that level. But if you peeled back who was actually innovating, mm -hmm. we'd hit a peak and call it 2016 on yep. performance per well. So I think uh, I think to your point, majors aren't the ones that are leading the charge to hit these lofty forecasts. I don't think they have anything in their hip pocket to do it with technology wise. Well, I, you know, after watching Pioneer commit to a million barrels a day and then having to pull immediately back off that, I don't know why any major would even make that commitment just on an absolute basis. That is a huge number out of that basin, mm -hmm. just given the well intensity and the labor intensity of of the model. Right. It's, it's, you can't find the staff. You're not going to be able to hit numbers. Right. And, you know, battling, I, I think Exxon may have peaked at somewhere in the mid 50s of numbers of rigs operating in the Permian. And one very smart CFO who's now retired told me at a, at a conference one time fairly recently that, look, there, there's no, there's no engineering going on at the peak of a cycle. There's nothing but engineers and geologists and technical folks doing logistics management. Right. And I can tell you from direct observation and somewhat direct experience 
one of the companies I work for ran 62 rigs, I believe at the peak in the Permian. And that, that is a, you know, that is an efficiency challenge and an execution challenge that I think is really, really difficult for a major to manage just given the, the, you know, as Lee Raymond said, I mean, it's thank, hard to make the elephant dance. Thank goodness our audience has us to to ferret and wade through this all this bullshit to come up with the right analysis. So <laughs> thank goodness. Okay, so I'm going to be a buzzkill, and I hate to do this, but so we've basically said, you know, we think oil demand is going to be way more than potentially even what Exxon and BP are thinking. We've said we're not going to do it out of the Permian, which has arguably been the marginal barrel for the last few years here. Now, are we going to do it with an even bigger political target on our back? Because Chevron's out doing this huge buyback instead of investing in the ground like President Biden demanded of them. And Exxon just reported $56 billion worth of profits, their greatest year ever. Well, I'm going to jump into the whataboutism that Let's we've recently um, uh, availed ourselves of in, in, in discussing some of this. I saw a post on LinkedIn last night about uh, a description of Chevron's buyback or using Chevron as an example of, quote unquote, financial chicanery and stock price inflation. Right. When the clear message from the shareholders in energy who have suffered through laggard, if not non-existent returns for a decade plus, has been not only do we want return on, we want return of. And so we can argue the merits or demerits of Chevron's specific kind of high profile announcement. But then when we go over and look at the tech sector and the bellwether there being Apple, do you know over the last decade they've repurchased over a half a trillion uh, of shares? And so the point that's being made is why not accelerate at scale the reinvestment capital to innovate is, is really the main point here. Why aren't you doing more in the short term to, to juice production? You've pointed out the, the logistical and just kind of structural difficulties behind why, that. Why aren't you moving your manufacturing to the Midwest uh, with all the money you've made, Apple, instead of doing buybacks so that we're not using slave labor in effect in China? Right. Yeah. Sorry. But here's the here's thing I think Chevron's missing. If you take Apple and Exxon, who have also been big on buybacks, they did something else that Chevron has yet to do. They have yet to pull the trigger on a billion dollar, dollar headquarters. So when you don't know what to do with cash, what do you do is you build a huge complex. And so Chevron, if you're listening, which I know most of the CEOs they love of us. the majors <laughs> listen to us. Hey, Mike. Uh, Mike, this is a great opportunity to build a billion-dollar campus. And let's employer go ahead, retention. And let's go ahead and get the naming rights of a stadium or two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I was, you know, what's interesting is I'll tell you what's kind of scaring me is global investment in a low carbon energy transition totaled 1.1 trillion in 2022. So we're we're throwing that we're throwing that chart up right now. It's a new record. Um and a huge acceleration from the year before. At the same time, it's estimated, and this is Bloomberg, so take it with a grain of salt. A top-down estimate of global fossil fuel investments, including upstream, midstream, and downstream, an unabated fossil fuel power generation is also estimated at $1.1 trillion in 2022. So this is the first time that global energy transition investment has matched fossil fuel investment. Now, 
I think if you're a pundit and if you read some of the other Bloomberg articles, they're saying like the, the transition's been made. It's here now. Like oil's going down. What I would argue is that we haven't invested enough in oil and gas. And that's a huge problem because we're going to see a gap out like we're seeing in food. And we can talk about that, you know, rat hole at some point. But I'm really concerned that there hasn't been enough investment in oil and gas. What say you and and what's going to happen in the next few years if oil demand, as Exxon says, is going up? I mean, so I had a uh, uh, cuppy. Harris Kupperman on the uh, podcast last week. And we Cuppy talked to you. Cuppy to, to his friends and on Twitter. And we talked about potentially this super cycle coming in oil. Mm -hmm. And he's just going, I just, he goes, the only thing I see stopping demand is if governments decide to shut us all in our house again. So theoretically that could happen. But outside of that, you see nothing happening on the demand side. Mm -hmm. And you just... By any metric, we're underinvesting, whether it's new builds of oil field uh, equipment, whether it's dollars in the ground. I mean, who's when's the last time we spent an exploration dollar, like a true old school uh, wildcat well? We're going to be, I mean, we can't put this on YouTube now that you said that. Yeah. We, we used to, you know, we used to be pretty good at exploration, except for the coincident two decades or so that unconventional has been around and we would track conventional exploration globally, you know, the, the good old fashioned actually finding it. And some of it was a classification issue, but there were success rates for a long period of time over the last 20 years that were running in the 15%. And they were finding in, in my expression, the wrong stuff because they were finding a lot of gas, yeah. right? I actually right. think the success rate is lower. And so if you look, the have, geologic success. Right, exactly. Yeah. The dreaded geologic success. If you have to do a restart to try to backfill some of this, this maybe, I don't want to call it plateauing, but decelerating rate of growth coming out of the reliable Permian, do you then have and to toggle rate of investment? Right. Do you the then time. have to toggle back? I think this is, you know, a long running theme as well. Do you then have to toggle back to restarting? or accelerating the capability in conventional exploration, a lot of which is going to be offshore and deep water and international as well. Well, well and, and let's take it a step further too, because we've underinvested and we, the war in Ukraine points out again, that when you buy oil or energy from dictators, bad shit happens, right? And so we still get a lot of our energy from bad places in this world. So, you know, we're under investing and let's say a bomb goes off in the gore field. Let's, I mean, you you're know, promoting, like you've been promoting your. I'm not promoting this. I'm but just that saying is only, that is that a is real one of your scenario. First year, that is your big, um, you know, prognostication for this year is that something big like this will happen. So I love you promoting it. Could. It could. We don't want it to happen, but it could the, happen. The we have we have been totally spoiled, and I will pull up this uh, data, and we will get it on the air in the next two or three weeks. But if you look at political turmoil, shutting in oil over the last like thirty years, we have been on a, a an amazing streak vis-a-vis -vis like the sixties and seventies, where wars and stuff were shutting in right. oil on a fairly regular basis. Now, maybe that's just 
the new globalized world and everybody plays nice and oil comes out, or maybe we've been damn lucky. And so that's my worry is that we've been damn lucky. You know, one of the interesting highlights that have been sort of gnawing on is interestingly enough is that the U.S. is on course to double its liquefaction capabilities and exporting LNG. And we are currently the world leader of exporting in Qatar's number two. But by 2027, it's estimated that we'll go from 78 to 169 million metric tons of liquefaction capacity over the next five years, which will far outpace anyone else. So my point is, as I'm thinking through this, wars on the sides, which I think that is a huge risk, is that while we're underinvesting, we are definitely building the capacity to export our oil and our, our gas to the rest of the world, which could be a really good for the United States. Natural the world. Yeah. Natural gas is the strategic weapon, both offensive good and, for the, de- and good defensive. For the universe. Bro. We rank the U.S., I believe, not North America, the U.S. ranks currently fifth in the world in to- to- total uh, proved natural gas reserves. We have the potential, and I think we're a, a quarter to a third of Russia. We have the potential in in my view, long range, uh, particularly if you bring North America into the mix, particularly the U.S. and Canada, to to far outstrip that and then start to push out coal as a power generation fuel. But you got to do that mm. in a fairly timely way, fairly rapidly. And you know who's going to provide all that capital, um, particularly when we see. I'm enjoying the back and forth on what's going on in the natural gas realm, particularly the EMPs lately here with the collapse in natural gas prices. You know, where's the staying power and, mm-hmm. and the returns incentive to make that happen? Potential's there. The know-how's there. We're going to add some meaningful capacity, and we ought to continue to build on that. I just don't know how we do it. You, you know, I would actually have a lot more respect for the World Economic Forum if they sat there. They can all still fly there in their private planes. They can do that. But if they sat there and said, okay, here's the Marshall Plan for energy transition, Mm. the U.S., Europe, we're going to finance to China and India natural gas infrastructure. I mean, I I don't know that China would let that happen. India might. India is kind of like, yeah, whatever, guys. China kind of views us as a mortal enemy. So they may not let it happen. But if we did that, mm-hmm. I mean, we could certainly supply it if we had the political will to do it. And that would be the most effective thing we could do to reduce CO2 emissions. Yeah. Well, well, what's interesting about China is China, of that $1.1 trillion for energy transition investment, half of that went to China, which is funny because China's just turning around and selling. They're just making money. Yeah, they're they're, they don't, they're they're building it all with coal. Yeah, right? yeah, they're building it with coal, but they're tra- they're taking all the investment and turning around and selling it to the rest of the world. Like they're winning, they're, I, you know. They're exporting coal. Their, by strat- the, uh, their strategy transition. is a huge winner. So, um, I don't know what you know. China is a dictatorship in a big way, but man, they sure figured out how to take advantage. So, going back to the one point one or two trillion of alternative or renewable investments rivaling traditional energy. How much of that is related to the push by the majors or traditional energy in general? How much of that 1.1 trillion is is the investment of traditional energy that has been, you know, the headline focus, 
they need to do more. BP's, you know, made big commitments. I don't think it's actually as much as you think it is. Um, because it'd be interesting well, I, to see because, like that versus like Google and Apple. Yeah, I, I don't think it's yeah. a lot, it's, and it's nor should lot. it be when you look at the relative proportions of of the size of traditional energy versus everyone else, particularly tech. Why do we care? And this point's been made before. Why do we care what the majors are doing outside of its convenient political focus, what the majors are doing in transition to renewables and innovation in that regard? uh, If, if the return performance from their traditional business over the last 10 to 20 years has been marginal to poor, right? What, as Mike Worth said a year and a half ago at their new analyst Mike's day, when listening. they were, when they rolled out Chevron New Energies, and it was they made a very explicit point. He just texted one me of calm down, calm the f down. So <laughs> one of the paths or two of the paths that they were not going to pursue because they didn't have an advantage and they didn't see the return opportunity was in wind and solar. I'll tell you the only which people, was somehow controversial. There's only two groups that care, or three groups: institutional investors, shareholders and competitors. So the majors having been inside of major and have sworn have never destroyed capital because my investments actually are making money. But the argument is there's this huge push by institutional investors for them to get rid of oil and gas as as an asset class. And I think that's going to change. But the pressure on the management teams of these majors is, look, we don't need you to transition because we can put our money into a Tesla, not you. But but what what the majors are doing is they're getting pressure from both sides. They're getting pressure from those that only want them to just return dividends, and they're getting pressure from you know the banks, you know the Church of England and others that are saying you need to transition your entire business over to renewable. So they have a window of funds that they can use to say that hey, we're doing good stuff. But the problem is, and and this is the you know, the, the biggest uh, not secret in the room is that the returns aren't there on renewables. And and it's funny because when we, you know, when Shell and the executives no longer with Shell, when he said, we're going to be the largest, you know, utility in the world by 2025, he got in big trouble for saying it because one is the fact is where are we going to make the money? But some of my friends that are running some of the most profitable renewable businesses that have been from a utility laughs at us because they're crushing it because they know the business i don't think these majors understand this business and it's there's the returns aren't there well in in the investment that is being suggested uh doesn't come with a commensurate return that shows up and as a creative to return on capital employed which is you know part of the reticence i think the part of the majors are now getting back to kind of salad days returns on capital employed the the notion that you're you can even you can even attach this to really shifting hard back into long cycle. When are you going to start to see returns from very long cycle investments like those big projects in deep water? Well, Same with the more ambiguous uh, renewables that have not certainly in some cases reached um, commerciality at scale. There's a well, reason why the new CEO of Shell came from deep water and integrated gas because the future is making money, not you know, running around saying, hey, we're going to make money on renewables. I, I That might be a path, but right now, financially, it, there's no logic at this so, point. So, agree with both y'all. 
Now let's go triple interest rates and see how great that <laughs> shit works. Because that's all right. I got a fact here that may only interest me, but we'll uh, we'll spend a quick minute on it. It's your show, Chucky. Twenty twenty two, first year in the U.S. E M P M and A market where we didn't have a ten billion dollar deal, a deal greater than ten billion dollars since two thousand thirteen, but. On the other hand, we had 25 deals between 1 billion and 5 billion, and that was the most since 2016. Just a tidbit that kind of interests me. Now, one other quick thing before we get to uh, finger of the week. Well, do you have any other opine on that, or just you just want to say that the may stat. only interest me? You it know, is interesting. You know, like kind of interesting. Um, Okay, we got to spend forty five seconds because we 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 had to retire giving finger of the week to Biden just because of all of his shit. But dude's in a hundred and fifty thousand dollar electric Hummer, talking about don't worry guys, I'll give you seventy five hundred bucks to go buy one of these. Seriously, he said in his tweet, the Great American Road Trip is now electric or something like that, and he's in the photo op in the in the in the electric H two. So. So if zero is like the Pope or Gandhi feeding the poor or Mother Teresa. Let's use Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa feeding the poor. And 10 is Marie Antoinette saying, let let them eat cake. Where is it on a scale of one to 10? I mean, 11. Can we say that? Oh, got it. Before right. we get to finger of the week, okay. let me tell you something that's interesting is, you know, we've talked about chat GPT and how it can do everything. It's the AI of all AIs. So I just said, hey, I'm, I can tell you what the natural gas price is. But I was like, hey, chat, what is today's natural gas price in U.S. and Europe? This is chat GPT, the most powerful AI in the world that's changing all of our lives. I'm sorry, I do not have the current natural gas price as my training data only goes up until 2021. And I cannot access real-time data. Natural gas prices can fluctuate on a daily basis. I mean, this is technology. They do not like us. They're <laughs> against us, but we're going to fight back and we're going to prevail. Just saying. There we go. There we go. All right, everybody. The finger of the week. This week's Finger of the Week, in case you didn't recognize the picture, the Empire State Building. I mean, the bastion of New York. All that is New York starts with the Empire State Building. A number one. Lit itself up as green this week in honor of the Philadelphia Eagles. The NFC East rival to the New York Giants making it to the Super Bowl. King Kong is right, man. The Empire State Building is just fucked up. That's horrible. I mean, that was my. That's like of the, the tower going purple, or you know, our our conference alignment. Once the playoffs roll around and we're on the outside looking in, right? So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have a championship or success by association. <laughs> I'm just rooting against the Eagles. I mean, you know, I'm, as an Astros fan, I just Philadelphia's going down. The fact that New York's trying to prop them up is just tells me everything you need to know. I think so. You can't I, uh, you can't do it on on uh, home state of the starting quarterbacks because they're both from Texas. 
Yes, sir. That's true. That's true. Now, and if we I, could, we could pick cities, right? And uh, and go Mahomes. Another yeah. fact that only interests me is I believe uh, Coach Kingsbury at Texas Tech, having Pat Mahomes as his quarterback, only had one winning season, which is beyond me how that happened. Uh, and two, in in a bit of good news, this first Super Bowl we've had where both starting quarterbacks have been black. That's cool. Because uh, I remember, I mean, I remember growing up. Y'all remember growing up what a big deal Doug Williams was, you know? And uh, so anyway, cool to see. There you have it. All right, Digital Wildcatters. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll figure out our technical shit and get all this together. But if you like the podcast. It's the outside pipe. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's the outside pipe. And there you have it. Cheers, guys.